A Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do a team-specific podcast, and this one is on the Sacramento Kings, which were the story of so much drama last week, and then I guess you could call it redemption since then, with DeMarcus Cousins coming back from his Achilles injury. And the guy that I know to talk to there is James Hamm. He is the Kings insider for CSN California and CSN Bay Area. He's been covering the team for six years knows them super well, and this is a great conversation, and part of the reason I liked it, I really don't want to spoil too much of it, is we go in a couple directions that are really exciting and fun to me, of things that I just didn't remember that he has in his backlog of knowledge, of basically people that have been involved involved with the Kings organization, and it was a really fun to do. Conversation runs about an hour, I think you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Anytime. This has certainly been an interesting, I think, about three weeks for the Kings. And I, I thought the, the place to start with this is to really go through the drama that it seems like has subsided now, but go through what happened about, it was about a week and a half ago, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a, a week ago Monday. So yeah, we're a little over a week and a half, maybe 10 days out, 11 days out. Yeah, this team is always filled with drama. It's the Sacramento Kings. I mean, I, actually, they should retitle them something that has to do with drama so i mean it's total drama island I, i've been covering this team for six seasons and every year it's the same thing we've always got something major going on at any time even today i mean we're anxiously awaiting to see if demarcus cousins will in fact get suspended or not so yeah the drama of a week ago it's not atypical uh, honestly this isn't the first time that demarcus cousins has had a loud disagreement with a coach it won't be the last but this was probably one that had to happen uh, because the disconnect between players and coach was was evident, and it wasn't getting any better. And the one thing I, which is kind of strange, is that Demarcus had just sat a bunch of games, four and a half games with a with a Achilles injury, and then he comes back in his first game and he blows up at Carl. But I think that was pent up frustration, and not just from him, but from multiple people within the locker room. That you know, sort of enough is enough. Let's get this thing going on the right path, and this isn't the path that we think is the right path. And that's a big part of it, especially with this one, and I think separates it from some of last year's dramas, that the situation was that, so the the team was, I think they played pretty pretty reasonably well before Cousins got hurt. He, uh-huh. he, he got injured, and then they, you know, I think they lost every game that he missed, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, they're they're playing like a team that has 12 new bodies or or 10 new bodies. That's what they're playing like. I mean, you can see that they actually have potential. Uh right now they're they're in games or winning games on grit alone, on talent alone, and they have yet to figure out how to play with each other, and that's a lot because they've had two games this entire season where they've had everyone, where they've had their big their big grouping of Rondo of Rudy Gay, of DeMarcus Cousins, and of Darren Collison. And that's that's their sort of their big four. And, you know, Gay missed a couple of games. Uh, Cousins missed four and a half games. Collison missed five games. Rondo's the only one out of the group that's all the games the entire season. But you can see how, you know, this group hasn't had, like, that moment to simmer in the pot and sort of figure things out. And now we finally might get to that unless of course again demarcus gets suspended on uh, this morning for uh, his elbow to the face of um, al horford yeah and I, it's something i honestly don't know despite the time that i've covered the league in terms of how they administer it it seems to me like if he had actually connected it definitely would well he would have been ejected too but 
I don't know how a swing and a miss affects it. Like, because I know with J.R. Smith, his contact in the playoffs with, uh, I think it was Jay Crowder, like, hit, the contact was a big part of that. So I, I don't know how that affects the decision-making process for the league office. Yeah, I went through sort of the protocol for it last night. I was reading through the NBA bylaw, uh, bylaws on it, and it's it's pretty complex, and it's also very subjective. At the end of the day, you can look at all of it, and, and you can, you know, read the fine print, and the fine print at the end of the day says, you know, it's still up to them what the penalty would be. So he could get assessed a flagrant two and not get a suspension. He could, you know, the flagrant two would go back onto that game. Um, he could also not get anything, and then he could also get a, a one or a two game suspension. I, I'm assuming the league is looking at it pretty hard and, and saying, okay, number one, he he did connect, but it wasn't it wasn't your conventional elbow. It was kind of a poke, uh, and it was also Horford had his hands up in Cousins around, you know, his upper. Uh, his upper chest or his neck area leading up to that. And he was, you know, sort of fending for himself. But, at you know, the, the actual moment of blow, it's a tough one. I, I do think that there's a good chance he gets suspended. So we'll we'll go back a little bit to yeah, to the yeah. to the blow up. I think I think it it provides an important not context but just a, a part background for this season. Not only now but moving forward. And so the blow up was it was after the game on Monday, correct? Yes, it was after the game on Monday. And so that was mostly that that part of it was mostly Cousins directed at Carl. Is that right? Well, well Cousins is in in sort of the aftermath is that it wasn't just directed at Carl or at least Cousins hasn't spoken on that specifically, but sort of the word out there is that it was aimed at the team and and Carl and his and his unwillingness to adapt in game that was one of the bigger issues. The Kings have done something really strange all season where all they do is switch on defense. It's the most dizzying thing of all time. I mean, if you watched any of the Atlanta game, every single big man the Kings had went one-on-one -on, -one on, you know, on the defensive end against uh, Dennis Schrader. Uh, sh uh, I don't know how do you, however you pronounce his name. Schroeder. Uh, Schroeder. There we go. There we go. There's nothing worse than watching Cousins, Willie Cauley-Stein, Quincy A.C., literally trying to defend one of the quicker point guards in the league again and again and again. And it's because all they do is switch. So anyway, Cousins, uh, a lot of what we're hearing is a lot of the, the blow up was like, look, there's a disconnect here. You have a game plan and your unwillingness to adapt in game and change the game plan is costing us games. And I thought it was very interesting. But if you go back to the previous couple of games, um, even opening night, opening night was the prime example I've never seen anything like this. George Carl, his defensive schemes, they're so easy to pick out so early in the game. Like, you know, oh, all right, well, I guess tonight you're going to try to take away the the three-pointer and you're going to try to take away the lob by the Clippers. And anything else goes. You can shoot all you want from 18 to 20 feet. We're going to give you that shot every, all, all game long. It's a bad shot. But the Clippers, of course, start hitting every single 18 to 20 foot jumper and blow the Kings out of the water. But there's that, we've seen that same exact sort of scheme, not that specific scheme, but a version of that scheme in every game this season where, you know, again, Toronto comes in and all of a sudden they're, they're bombing away from three and the Kings just let them have them. Like, go ahead. We're not going to give you any dribble drive. We're going to close off the paint. You're not going to go to the free throw line, and eventually they win out. So, so sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's it's a very interesting nuance to George Carl's system. I've never seen a coach where you look out on the court and you're looking for one or two specific things that he is going to take away from the other team, and then anything else goes. And you you can beat with anything. It. Yeah, and then they stick with it the entire game. I mean, who was it that they beat? Uh, Tolliver kept hitting three-pointers in Ilasova. So is Detroit. The Detroit game, they double-teamed Reggie Jackson the entire game, and they had two guys slide over and push Andre Drummond out of the key and keep a body on him the whole game, and they wouldn't let him, of course, you know, get the, the law pass either. And they said, go ahead and beat us. And eventually... The other guys on the court couldn't beat the Kings, and the Kings beat Detroit. 
I mean, it's so it it does work, but it doesn't work all the time. And your and Carl's inability to accept the fact that it's not working and just ride it out has really it it confuses the players because you know again if you look at the the Toronto game, Toronto goes I think it was fourteen for twenty four to start the game from behind the arc. They're just torching the Kings from behind the arc. And in the fourth quarter, they stayed with it. And Toronto goes one of nine. The laws of averages work themselves out. They go one of nine and the Kings win. And so I, I don't know if you should really jump all over Carl for a strange scheme. But at the same time, you know, the players are confused. And when players are confused, that doesn't usually lead to good things. And the blow up is a lot of what happened with that. That and the fact that there's sort of a detachment. Carl has delegated a huge amount of his role as the head coach to Chad Iskey and his other assistants, his other assistants, which he trusts uh, very, very much. They, these are guys that he's been with for years, except for Corliss Williamson. All of these other guys he's been with, if, if you look at the group, uh, Vance Wahlberg and, you know, uh, John Welsh and, uh, all of these guys, he's been with them. He knows them. This is his group that he trusts, but he delegates so much. And so it almost feels like to the players that he's not coaching that he's not really the head coach. He just sits there in a chair. You know, again, he's had throat cancer twice. Uh, his voice is very ragged. And uh, he, he uses his assistants. This is, his assistants are on the same page with him, but he uses them to coach on the floor. And then the other thing that George does is he's always been a guy who speaks very openly to the media. And so when you have a guy who's sort of detached from the team, and then when he goes in front of the media... He's not so detached and he's very open and honest about the faults of his players. That's when you start to see this separation and the players are like, wait a sec, dude, are you even coaching us? Why are you going out there and talking trash about us? And again, it leads to a, a bigger issue than probably needed to have happen. But, but I don't know. I don't know if the Kings could have survived without someone saying something. So it's always, you know, you don't like the way that Cousins does it sometimes. But in this situation, I don't know that there was any other way to sort of snap this coaching staff out of the uh, the cycle that they were in without someone screaming and yelling profanities. Well, yeah, there, there are two things that I think are more encouraging about this than some of the other drama they had. One is that it's substantive, and I think that from what I've heard, there's just there's a legitimate kernel like you were talking about before. And the other the other kind of component of it that that is encouraging in a way to me is that I can totally understand this because. I think all of us have been in places in our life, whether it be in your personal life or in your professional life, where different things feed together, and if you don't let any part of it resolve, then it just builds up into something that's unsustainable. And I think that, that you know, that's something that we can all connect with, and I think that it makes this it makes this feel different than a lot of the other kind of ridiculousness that they've had the last couple of years. Yeah, it's not just Cousins being Cousins. I think that's the one thing that people need to understand, that yes, he is abrasive. Yes, he is a loud voice, um, not always a friendly voice, and he speaks his mind. And that can be a really bad thing, but in certain situations, it has to happen. It, it somebody has to go in there and just blow the thing up and say, look, this, it, and you know, and to his defense, I've heard it uh, multiple times, including from his, his own camp. He did not ask for George Carl to be fired, not during the summer and not during this blow up. He actually asked that they don't fire George Carl, that he, he understands that this is, you know, how many coaches, five coaches and six years in the league. And you can't just keep cycling through coaches and you, you've got to give something a shot. But at the same time, George is, is so set in his ways that he is, you know, a basketball giant and that he is going to do what he's going to do and no one is going to stop him. And I, I get that, you know, the guy has so many wins. It's ridiculous. I mean, he's going to pass Phil Jackson this season for, uh, and wins. He'll move into fifth place all time and, and then he'll start. If he sticks around long enough, he'll start knocking off everybody else on his way to the top to, uh, Don Nelson. But, you know, at somebody, at some point, it doesn't matter how many wins you have in the past. What really matters is can you connect with this team? Can you get this team specifically turned around? Will they play for you? And I think that is probably the biggest question to come out of all of this. The Kings last season, they would have, I mean, there, if Michael Malone would have asked, you know, the entire team, like, look, 
I need someone to go to my daughter's dance recital tonight instead of playing tonight's game because somebody has to hold a tape recorder for me and, and videotape the thing. There wouldn't be a player in the entire locker room that wouldn't have changed out of his uniform right then and got in his car and driven to Michael Malone's kid's school to capture that video for him. That is how big of an influence he was in the locker room. George Carl, on the other hand, he is so separated with his coaching staff and then it's his coaching staff and then the players. And I don't know that you can live in two separate worlds in the NBA and have it be productive. At some point, someone has to want to play for their head coach. And I'm not sure that they were that way a week ago. They were not before the blow up. Maybe they are getting closer to that, but George has to figure that out. He has to figure out a way for his players to want to play for him. And that's part of the concern for me with what has happened. And there are obviously encouraging signs, but none of this is a surprise with Carl. Like this is just it. It is who he is. And there, there were moments in the in from what you hear of what happened in Denver that the relationships frayed and things like that. And he's a wonderful coach, and his style is a little bit different. And it's the same thing with Malone. It's like it wasn't surprising, I think, to anybody that when he got fired, especially given the opportunity and the way things happen, it wasn't surprising that things fell apart then. Of course not. I don't think it was surprising at all. These guys were – that was their general. They were going to war with him every night. And, you know, the cousin's illness just took his legs out from underneath him. I mean, if you really look at the Kings' schedule last season, where they were the day before DeMarcus Cousins came down with viral meningitis and to where they were when Malone was fired, the schedule got so cupcake. If Cousins wouldn't have been out, I had the Kings finishing December somewhere around like 20 and 6, something like that. I mean, or not, maybe not that good. Maybe it was like 20 and 10, 20 and 10. Um, but 20 and 10 means they're in the hunt. You know, and they've got to get through some things in, in the early January, February months, some scheduling snafus. But they would have, if with Cousins on that team, they had an opportunity. I mean, they had nothing but bad Eastern Conference teams coming into their home building. Uh, I think it was something like 13 out of 15 games in December were either at home or at Golden State. It, it was just ridiculous. Everything was there for the taking. And it just fell apart because of an illness and because of an unstable situation in the front office. So it's a dynamic that keeps changing in Sacramento. And, and that's one of the probably the bigger problems is that you just can't keep switching guys every every couple of months. Yeah, it, and especially when it's working. And so for me, what was, was different, I was watching a fair amount of the Kings in the early part of that season. And the record was strong, and that, that matters. But more importantly than that, they were playing really well, and they were playing together. And it was mm-hmm. you could you could see kind of like the, the trend lines, and you could see that this was a team that was going in the right direction. And it was so strange to me, because I, I actually, the, so the game, I only ended up covering one game last year. I was planning on going up there a lot. Was the, it was the day they played the Pelicans, and they they lost that game, but they played well, and it was one of the in that run when the Pelicans were actually kind of figuring themselves out and were doing pretty well. And I got, I walked away from that game and said, you know, the Kings, you know, they might, you know, this might not be a year they make the playoffs, but this is the, this is the year that we start to say, okay, they're going to be relevant. And then less than a week later, Mike Malone is fired, from what I remember, or less than a week later, Cousins is hurt. I think it might have been a little yeah. bit longer that he was fired. Well, yeah, and I think if you really look at that season, I mean, they finished with 29 wins, which, sadly, that's the most wins they'd had in six seasons, even though they fired three coaches. So if you really look at that team and what they should have done versus what they did do, I mean, we're we're looking at a 38-40 to 40 win team last season. I, I mean, legitimately, that was a – they would have won that if you would have – wouldn't have had the, the massive injury uh, illness and the coaching changes, even if you still had the coaching changes, but you still had cousins or if even if you would have kept with Malone and forget, you, you know, and, and cousins got ill, but you, you bounced back that team probably would have won 38 to 40 games. And it just, you know, that giving up where they go like seven and 21 under Tyrone Corbin, that team quit. I've never seen a team quit like that. And that was shocking and we started to see that a little bit this season before that blow up. You started to see that same feel where guys really, really look like they were disinterested. And it's like, how could you be disinterested like second week of the season? 
and it's tough. Like people, uh, I've talked about this a little bit actually with with Warriors people because I covered them during the during the darker days. And mm-hmm. what some people kind of lose sen- lose sight of sometimes is that in sports, your wins and your losses are very are very important to you, and they're very public. So that means that they they transcend your professional life into your personal life at points. And so losing is hard and losing a lot for a long time is way, way tougher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cousins has never won more than 29 games in the season. I mean, that's, that's startling. I mean, can you name another player of his quality, his, you know, how good he is? That's never won more than 29 games. I don't think that there's ever been a player. And we're not talking about the old good player on a bad team thing. We're talking about a top five player in the NBA. How is it that he's never won more than that? And I mean, there's a lot to that question. It's a, it's a very loaded question, but at the same time, you know, it's something that the Kings need to work through. They need to figure out how to support him the right way. I don't think just like people say, oh, you know, this is, he won't be long for this team. You know, the one thing that sticks out in my mind that, and I know that Vlade Divac is, uh, Vlade Divac is close with Jeff Petrie. I mean, they were together in Sacramento for all their years. The one thing Jeff Petrie always said, there's never been a championship championship team outside of that what early 2000s Detroit Pistons. Outside of that team, there has never been an NBA championship team without a Hall of Famer. You just can't win without a Hall of Famer. And it holds true today and it will probably always hold true that in order to win a championship in the NBA, you have to have that one or two Great player, not just really good all-star level player. You have to have a Hall of Famer, and if you don't get that player, then then you're done. And the Kings have tried everything to draft a second guy through through the top ten for you know almost what ten years now. They've looked for that other guy. I mean, you date all the way back to Spencer Hawes going one after another after another top ten lottery pick. They just haven't been able to find that guy. And yes, they have missed. They missed on Damian Lillard. They missed on plenty of other players that could have been that guy. But if that's your mindset and you know that you can't trade Cousins for a Hall of Fame quality player, which you can't, then you got to hold on to him. And you got to keep figuring out how to build around him until you get the right mixture in place. And then you go and you do whatever you're going to do. Yeah, it's an incredibly important point. The stat that I use on that is, so the last non-Piston team to win an NBA championship without a player who had already won a regular season MVP was the 81 the eighty one Celtics who had Larry Bird. He just hadn't won an MVP yet. Yeah. So, like, so you can think about, <laughs> you can think about championships in, in that way, but it's, it's, it's more than that in, in the sense that just a modicum of, of success and that durable success usually requires that sort of player. I mean, you do have the teams that, that rise for a short period of time without it. But the Kings are lucky and rare that they have one of those players. And one of the other things that I, th- I think you can speak to better than most that has been really frustrating to me, and I've seen this around various places, so I'm not like subtweeting in audio form a singular person, is... <laughs> People have compared it to like, oh, look at the Pistons. They're doing so well with the, with Andre Drummond. Like the Kings haven't done that with Cousins. No, they did it with Cousins last year, and then the rug got pulled out from under them, partially due to injury, partially due to their own thing. So, the Pistons and the Pistons have in Stan Van Gundy, they have somebody who has been who can kind of shape a team in a in a more quick way, and they were it gave him the ability to build around Drummond in a way that the Kings, for whatever reason, just never really have with Cousins. They've never identified, this is this is the right type of player. And just, yeah, maybe they're less talented. You know, maybe maybe they're, maybe Rudy, I'm not singling out Rudy Gay, but like, you know, like maybe it's better to have a slightly inferior player who can shoot and who is willing to facilitate and things like that. And the Kings have just, for whatever reason, opportunity, whatever you want to say, I just don't think they've ever built the right pieces around him. No, I, I mean, that's that's very true. But at the same time, how do you build those pieces? Uh, I think that's the, the million-dollar question. How do you get those people in place? And, you know, the instability of this franchise throughout his, his time, 
I mean, Petrie was there for, I think, what, his first three years, and then Dallas Andro for two years, and now we've got uh, Vlade here for, for this season. That instability, everyone's always got, like, a five-year plan. Everyone's always got some, you know, uh, well, actually, I'll even back it up. Under Petrie, the Maloofs were so broke that they they didn't have a pot to piss in. I mean, it was horrible. They ran the lowest payroll in the NBA. They were at the floor. I remember one season... They actually made a trade. They picked up a player who never played again, who had a neck injury. Marquise Daniels? That might I, be possible. That that might be who it was. I think they picked him up in a trade just to get to the floor, knowing he would never play, just so they wouldn't have to pay a penalty. It was so pathetic. So when you're trying to build strictly through the draft and not knowing, I mean, again, if you go back to the uh, – the decision not to draft Damian Lillard, to draft Thomas Robinson instead, uh, that, from what I know, was specifically an issue with finances. Petrie looked at his roster. He went to the Maloofs and said, hey, I need you to make sure that you've got enough money in the coffers to let me re-sign Jason Thompson. And they said, we're not going to commit to that. And he's like, are you kidding me? And they said, no, we can't commit to that right now. So go into the draft knowing that. And at the last second, the night before the draft, I was told the Kings were drafting Damian Lillard. He'd come in, he shot, I I think he missed one total shot in his workout for the Kings. Total. One. And they loved him. They loved his leadership. They loved everything about him. They were drafting him the night before. And the next morning... They woke up knowing that they wouldn't have enough money to sign a power forward, so they had to draft one, and they draft Thomas Robinson. That's not how you build a winner. And so, like, I love what Vlade did this summer. And, and you know, I'm going to say Vlade and Mike Bratz, because Mike Bratz is a big part of this. And, you know, this whole thing that the, King, the, the Divock has no support, that that's just hooey. I mean, that's a joke. Mike Bratz has been a scout. He's been an assistant GM for, you know, like uh, all of these different titles he's held over the last, like, 25 25- years he knows basketball he's a, a perfectly fine support guy to be right next to to Divots in this whole deal but my point is that Divots actually he looked at the roster and he made the necessary changes where i felt like dalessandro chased like exciting players guys who can dunk and he valued that so much more than he did um guys who can actually play the game of basketball so why you go out and you get Derek Williams versus someone else that could actually help you, that's sort of a bad a bad deal. You're trying to drum up, I, I don't know if it's fans or whatever, it, you know, we're going to lose, but at least we'll get a couple of big dunks in and people will have a good time. I'm not sure. But you you got to get away from that mentality. I really think D-Bots did that this summer with key additions. I mean, you can love or hate Rondo, but you can't say that he hasn't been absolutely spectacular in most of the Kings games this season. The turnovers have been brutal, but, you know, he's got four triple doubles on the season. You know, you look at Bellinelli, who has not played well at all, but long term, he will be a very good player. And they got him for a nice, solid budget price, especially when you look at next season when the cap goes bonkers. And and they got Kufus, uh, who, again, is a great team player, a great third big a guy who can fill in when Cousins is hurt or suspended, you know. So they did the right things this offseason. Willie Cauley-Stein, a complimentary piece to Cousins. So you can start to see that that's going to happen, that, that this is the right, you know, group of people to make decisions on building a team around Cousins. Now, it's not going to happen in one season. It's certainly not going to happen in 12 games. It's going to take a little bit of time. You're right on a lot of that. I do think they gave up they gave up too much to do it, but that's a separate discussion for a separate time. But I want to go back to Lillard a little bit because I had completely forgotten about that. I do remember hearing that <laughs> buzz at the time. And the other part of it that that some people might forget about Damian Lillard and the Kings beyond the the swagger that that team would have had is that Damian Lillard's a Northern California native. I mean, he's a guy that Warriors fans wanted in the Bay Area forever because he's an Oakland kid. Yeah. And he would have he would have resonated and I think he would have given not only the the rivalry between the two teams, but given the Kings an identity outside of Cousins, and that isn't a criticism of DeMarcus at all. I I think that he would have given them the the foundation that they could have used to do everything else. Yeah, he would have been the Kobe to Shaq or the Wade to Shaq. That's what he could have been for the Sacramento Kings. I mean, you just don't have an opportunity to come across an elite perimeter scorer like that. Elite, uh, he's so good, and 
you know, the, the, that will be a mistake that haunts this franchise. Again, we talk, we go back to the Hall of Fame player thing. Damian Lillard's on the Hall of Fame path. I mean, you could have had two Hall of Fame path guys. And, and if you go back and really pick apart every draft, the, you know, drafting Jimmer over, uh, Clay Thompson, who went the next pick or Kawhi Leonard, that's brutal. I'm not, I'm never going to fault them for Tyreek Evans over Steph Curry. Uh, that, that's just, you know, that's crazy talk, but Thomas Robinson over Lillard and, and, and Drummond. It wasn't just Lillard, you know, even last season, uh, when they, they drafted Nick Stauskas over Alfred Payton, just like you're just making the wrong decision again and again and again. And we can discuss whether or not that this summer clearing cap space was a good thing or not. I'm confused. I'm confused why it's okay for everyone else to give Philadelphia tons of gap space. I mean, tons of, of salary dump and draft picks, but it's not okay for the Kings, especially when you consider they gave away, what was it, $30 million in basically dead dead salary to them between Stauskas, uh, Carl Landry, and Jason Thompson. Those guys, I mean, they weren't part of the future, so... And you can say, well, Stauskas was a first-round pick. And I'll say Jimmer was a first-round pick. And Stauskas has the same career path that Jimmer does, at least right now. That's what it looks like. I mean, you put him on a bad team and he gets to shoot 20 shots a game. He's got to shoot. He's got to hit more than 32 of them, 32% of them. And that's just, he's not ready to be an NBA player. He may never be an NBA player. And the Kings realize that very quickly. Well, I don't I don't want to get in too long of a thing with this, but my my issue with it was that they could have kind of cleared the money in a little bit of a different way. Basically, they gave up too much of a premium for what they got. I appreciate what they got. I think that they did that they, you know, they they got players, they got a better team. Like uh, it was always this weird split with me of like as saying that I didn't think they I didn't think they made necessarily the right moves in the summer, but I was generally thought they were a much better team, which I think they are. Uh-huh. And so and also because really that space cleared the money just for Rondo. Like they could have got Kufus, they could have gotten from what I remember with the cap. It's now hazy though. Obviously, yeah, was, yeah, was my life this summer, and I still think Collison is a better fit for the main guys than Rondo. Just because I think the way that his combination of shooting and passing and everything, I, I think that if like a year or two from now they do that, but really, like I, I think that. What's frustrating in a way about the Kings with that is that is this idea that their best case scenario this year was a whole heck of a lot better, but it wasn't good enough. Even like if Cousins had stayed, let's say he played 75 games. I mean, 82 was unrealistic for just about anybody. But Cousins, you know, he's had he's had time off the floor. It's just the way it is. It's not a criticism. I love the guy. But but so like for me, it was just more of a tactical decision of we're clearing money to make it this year, and I understand the new building part, and I, I get that, and I, I, I understand it. I talked with Tom Ziller about it, and, you know, I, I get all that. But for me, that it's it's not necessarily too little, too late. That's not the right way of putting it. It's just this isn't the time to try to peak. But when is it the right time? And when do you, how many years of DeMarcus Cousins' career do you waste? And how many, I mean, you got him under contract this year and two more, at just a complete budget, but what if you're not going anywhere in two years and he doesn't want to be here anymore because you're a team that can't go anywhere? And I mean, at some point, you have to actually make a commitment to getting better. And were the Kings two pieces away, three pieces away, they're probably five pieces away. I think that that's what we're looking at now. There, if you really pull back, they're probably four. They got three. And possibly four pieces with Collie Stein, but they need at least one or two more pieces. And if this wasn't the year to load up, I- I'm going to disagree because I think this year what you can do is you can load up with solid veteran players. And then next year where the Kings have over $30 million in cap space, they can go add that next piece or two that can make them go from a solid team to a very good team. And, you know, there's a lot of other teams that are going to be out there throwing big money around. So they're not going to get a star. I mean, the Kings aren't going to be in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes. But at the same time, you can't just keep sitting back and saying, okay, next year, next year. Next year, you know what? Half the teams in the league have between 30, actually, I think is more than that, have between 30 and $40 million in cap space. 
you're not going to get anyone of high quality next year. You had to do it this year. And I think that's what you, Devots looked at it and said, I think I can make a dramatic move now to change my roster and possibly set myself up to be in much better position to compete next year. And I don't fault him. Again, we're 12 games into a season. If this team is horrible at the all-star break, then we start looking at how to parcel this thing out and how big was this mistake or that mistake. But right now, I think the Kings are in a pretty good position to compete not only right now, but you know, to add a player at the break, uh, to add pieces next summer, and to actually take a huge step forward. Where do you think the Rondo, where do you think this goes? After, obviously, it's really early, but do you think he'll, you know, because he, it's, it was a very interesting contract that he signed, which is basically a straight one-year one year deal. Do you have any sort of inclination yet in terms of where that's going to go after, after you know, like July 1st, 2016? Yeah, I think Rondo is a king long term. Okay. I mean, I you can maybe not. I mean, it, it really depends. Do you have to blow the whole thing up, or can you add a piece or two and take that next step? I, I think that's really how they're going to have to assess this. And the reason why I'm going to say Rondo is a solution, he's not a problem, is I watch him on a daily basis, and the way that this team reacts to him. I've said this on the radio. I've said it, you know, in, in print. This is Rondo's team. It's not DeMarcus Cousins' team. Now, DeMarcus Cousins is a huge voice, but this is Rondo's team right now. And that might be scary for some people to hear, but this guy is a crazy leader. And he's, he's actually a really, really good basketball player still. We're not saying he's really good for a 29 year old. We're saying he's a really good basketball player. Big deal, he can't shoot. There are a lot of players in, in the history of the NBA who play positions that can't shoot. I mean, that's the way the game goes. You just have to surround him with better players. I mean, if you could tell me that he can't shoot the three, but DeMarcus Cousins can hit, you know, 42% of them, I'll take it. I mean, you just have to fill up the different spots on the floor with people that can do things that you need them to do. So I think Rondo probably... In my opinion, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I think he probably signs a three-year deal roughly around what Rudy Gay got last season from the Kings, which, you know, if you can get Rondo for three years at $13 million a year or whatever, that's a steal. I mean, in my book, if you can get him for three years and 40 and have him for his age 30, 31, and 32, and he's a highly productive player, and him and Rudy Gay are so incredibly close. I mean, Rudy Gay is his daughter's godfather. Um you know, they were, he was in Rudy Gay's wedding. I mean, these guys are close. And this locker room, while it looks splintered and crazy, it's not. The it the divide isn't between players. The divide is between players and coach. And so you have a giant group that are moving forward together trying to figure out how to be better a better team. And that's where sort of the maturation process comes. But again, Rondo's a huge piece of that. Yeah, and the Rondo Rudy relationship is something that I think is is kind of underappreciated, and that's it's really important when you think about how a team fits. Is that you know these players have lives outside of the teams that they're on, and yes. the connections that they make, <laughs> and sometimes that's a, most of the time I think that's a good thing. So every once in a while, it's it's a negative thing. I think back to the the whole Jason Kidd Jim Jackson thing. Like oh there, yeah, that's not good. There yeah. are times when it can be a problem, but. That that can help explain some of the some of what makes this year's team more cohesive. I mean, there are a lot of other reasons for it too, but it certainly helps. And where I wanted to go though was something you brought up that I wanted to talk about, which is Demarcus Cousins shooting threes. It's I'm somebody who loves it. I absolutely do. Do you think not not will it continue in terms of him taking the shots? But do you think that from what you've seen so far that how successful he is as it at it is something that can continue? Of course. I mean, I don't think on the court, I have yet to see anything that DeMarcus Cousins isn't really good at. You know, he is the most versatile big man that I think we've seen in decades. I don't, I can't even, you know, when you look at him and you say, okay, who does he compare to? There's no comparison. That's, that's when you know that you have something special, right? When you look at LeBron James and you say, okay, when have we ever seen like a six foot eight, 270 pound man that can jump out of the building and, and, and can do everything else and is a willing passer and is the greatest defensive player that we've seen, you know, 
at, at that position in a long time. I mean, who, who blocked shots all over the place. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you look at DeMarcus Cousins, you know, at first just like, okay, well, he could, he's got kind of like that Hakeem post move thing. And I asked Chris Gent one time about this and he goes, dude, he's like, he's so much better than, than what Hakeem was. He's like, Hakeem at, at the same age, he's like, Hakeem couldn't dribble basketball more than two dribbles. He's like, DeMarcus can lead a break, you know? And, and if you want to compare him to like Charles Barkley, it's like, okay, well, he's seven inches taller. You know, if, if, they're just, there's no one that really compares. And Anthony Davis is very versatile and has all kinds of tools. But at the same time, you know, he doesn't have the post play, the post game that Cousins has. He can't battle for a rebound and put it back in the tightest space you've ever seen and contort his body and you're just sitting there, you're in awe of his talent all the time. Now, all the other stuff with Cousins is, it is what it is. You got to deal with it. Uh, but talent alone, I don't care if he's shooting threes. I don't care if he's running a break. You know, again, I, I, I think back to when Chris Weber used to run a break. Everyone in the building was like, ah, Jesus, here we go again. You know, you're just waiting for him to fling a ball out of bounds. When Cousins leads a break, he dribbles like a guard. I mean, his spin moves, his ball between the legs, you're just like in awe of his talent. And I'm okay. Again, he can do whatever he wants on the floor. Some things you got to rein him back in. I'm kind of done with you shooting 18 foot jumpers. You miss a lot of them. Let's, you know, let's back it out and you shoot the three ball. So you get that 1.2 points per possession, or let's put you in the post and have you work away. Let's have you take people off the dribble. I mean, what is it that cousins can't do? I've yet to see it. Yeah, the way that I phrased it, ever, ever since he was at Kentucky, like it's been a while, is that he is the most physically gifted big, and I'm not counting LeBron as a big, though you could, of course, because he's yeah. like Carl Malone-sized, but I'll cheat and say that he doesn't count. He's the most physically gifted big in the time that I've really, really intently watched basketball. So that's not, you know, I, I can't speak to him versus young Hakeem because I wasn't super engaged then, but... And physically gifted is a very different term, and I think why I use that is because it, it involves an, an, an aptitude as well. And Anthony Davis is certainly in that mix, but what Cousins brings is he brings a physicality and a an athleticism for a size that is hard to hard to adjust to, and we saw that when they faced the Pistons and Drummond. And Drummond is a freak athlete in a very different way, and he just couldn't handle Cousins. Who can? I mean, you know who handles Cousins? This is kind of the, the really strange thing. The guys that handle Cousins are the brutes. They're the guys. The, not the guys who, who jump high and block shots. Like DeAndre Jordan can't, can't hang with Cousins. Andre Drummond can't hang with Cousins. Even you can say Anthony Davis has, he can't hang with Cousins at all. I mean, Cousins kills those guys. Uh, the Pekovichs. It's the the ground base giant, super strong. The Tiago splitters of the world. Those guys. Those guys that uh, that don't move. That usually give him a tougher time. And that was in the past. Now you know what he's doing to those guys. He's pulling them away from the basket and he's hitting three after three on them. And he's completely taking them out of their game. So they, they and then they slide out. And while they're sliding out, he runs right by them. I mean, that's the versatility of him. That's why uh, he has every opportunity to compete. If if there was no Steph Curry, he has every opportunity to compete for a scoring title. Came into last night's game averaging 28 points a game. He was 0.1 of a point out of second place in the league in scoring average. Uh, he has the potential to beat you so many different ways. And again, look for those big guys. That's why I think uh, when you look at the Golden State Warriors, they present such a difficult matchup because you got a, diff- a bunch of different types of guys, but really you have Festus Azili and you have, and you have Bogut who are ground based bigs that don't let Cousins get off in the key. And then that team just rotates and, and moves on the paint so well as, um, outside the paint around the, cor- uh, the arc so well that they actually do some, some good things, you know, to slow him down as well. So yeah, I, I think I think you make a good point about how Cousins is his development is making it so that he doesn't really have the same kind of a weakness. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to get to see what would have been a, a good matchup because as you know, during this time, Demarcus has been suspended for the elbow that hit Al Horford. Uh, 
How do you is is that something that you just kind of take as part and parcel to cousins from time to time, or is there something you know is the, is this more of an aberration now? You know what, this is a strange one because watching that game, it wasn't like he was getting cheap shotted and and he was feeling the, the uh, sort of the burn of the officials, which he he does quite often. He doesn't get you know the respect that he thinks he deserves and. And it starts to build and he snowballs and then he, he lashes out. That's not what happened in this situation. I, I almost want to ask him if Horford wasn't doing something that the camera doesn't pick up. Like if, if he wasn't pinching him or, or doing something strange because it does look like Horford from watching the film again and again and again has his hands way up high on Cousins chest and it's kind of an awkward thing. And Cousins is trying to avoid falling back. But then he kind of just like straightens up and sends an elbow. I don't know if this is an aberration. I I think it is what DeMarcus is. You know, as he's gotten older, he's going to, you're going to see less and less of this just because he's maturing as a man. But he still has that, that fire inside of him that can come out and rear its ugly head, you know, from time to time. It's just, you know, as every coach who's ever coached him and who coaches around the league says, it's a lot easier to tone down a guy with too much fire than it is to build a fire in someone who has none. And they would prefer DeMarcus Cousins every day of the week over, say, a Billy Owens who had no fire to play the game. And I think that that goes, you know, same for a guy like Derek Williams, you know, not a lot of fire to be a great NBA player. And you just can't teach that. And if that's what you have to put up with with Cousins, a, a one-game suspension here and there, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And it, it is a little bit frustrating just because you think, oh, oh, if he could clean that up. But at a certain point, you just kind of have to take it for what it is. And I think one of the other questions that I have with this team is just, if what is your instinct in terms of where they, where they finish this season? Because I still think what I thought at the beginning of the year, which is that they're kind of on the fringe of the playoff picture and if you know if a team takes a step back and a couple of teams it looks like they are are going to do that but with the other thing that we've seen this season is that they need close to their full complement to beat good teams yeah they're 0 and 4 this season without cousins they're 11 and 37 over his six years in the league without cousins they do have to have their full complement of players and you know again you go into a game like tonight against the miami heat and this is a real downer for the Sacramento Kings because Hassan Whiteside is rolling. And, you know, we had Hassan Whiteside in Sacramento as a very young player. And I did not believe he would ever figure things out. He he has some elite ability as a shot blocker. He has an incredible, uh, like, knack for shot blocking. And, you know, he can dunk. He can. He's not a great rebounder in the past, but he's developed. But he's got, like, what, a 7'5", 7'6", wingspan. He's... He's a tremendously long player. But my point is that Cousins has, like, the mojo over him. Like, he's got little brother syndrome to Cousins. And so every time that they have played over the last two seasons, while Hassan's back in the league, Cousins just dominates him. He puts him on the bench within the first, you know, two minutes of the game, and he's got foul trouble, and he can't get off. And next thing you know, he he's played, you know, 18 minutes of totally ineffective ball. And, uh, and the Kings you know, have a fighting chance against a good team. They did lose both games last year against the Heat. But when you take Cousins out of that and you look at what Whiteside did, I mean, Tuesday night against Minnesota, he has a triple-double, something like 22, 14, and 10 blocks. Mm-hmm. And now you you put him up against Costa Kufus instead of DeMarcus Cousins, and I think it's just a, a totally different matchup. I think the Kings went from hoping to win a game to hoping to survive and not have this thing snowball out of control again. And, you know, you can put some of that on Cousins for missing a game that he shouldn't miss because he did something he shouldn't do. But, you know, it's kind of the reality of the situation. I hadn't put together the whole big brother, little brother thing, though. That isn't a surprise. And actually, that leads me into something that I wasn't anticipating asking, but I think you're a good person to talk about it with. And that's Hassan Whiteside had a very tumultuous time with the Kings, and it's not that far away from that. And what I'm wondering is, from from what you from what you remember from that time, do you think that that is enough of a reason to give a team like Miami pause to commit long term to him in a way that they have not had to yet? 
Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, Miami has not, I mean, they love the deal that they signed to keep him for two years. Uh, and I even talked to Spolstra about this. They had had Hassan Whiteside in camp the year before, and they liked what he was bringing, but at the same time, they knew he wasn't ready yet, so they told him, you know, sorry, dude, and sent him back in again. Uh, when he came back the last time, at, you know, during last season, Spolster specifically said that, you know, you look into his eyes and the commitment level had changed, the understanding had changed. That is something that I did not think would happen. He's a sweet kid, but at the same time, there's just a little bit missing that that always lends you to believe that it would be difficult for him to figure out the pro game, you know, and, and I'm very, very shocked that he's been able to do what he's done. You know, I'm happy for him, but at the same time, I just like, I, you know, the stories that, that we have in Sacramento media of, of Hassan Whiteside are long and hilarious, and they lend it you to believe that he would never develop past, you know, anything, actually, into a, into a, a serviceable NBA big at all. We, I'm very surprised that he is in the league and that he, you know, to say that he's doing so well means that somebody got him right in a way that I didn't think would happen. And I think that's what makes his negotiation maybe arguably the most interesting free agency in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, because each team has to make this incredibly complicated analysis. And what makes it different and why I'm so interested is that so many teams are going to have money that every team has to have the Hassan Whiteside conversation. Well, they're all going to chase him. Everyone's going to chase him, but it's whether or not they've done their homework. I mean, that's the biggest issue. Have you done your homework? And I, again, like, I don't think the Kings, the Kings have been down that road. They know, you know, even his first season, like his first season, he came in and he played sparingly. Then, you know, just to give you a couple of like tidbits of information on Whiteside, he hurt his knee early in the season and basically they just had to shut him down for the rest of the year. And they all looked at me when I asked about him. They're like, yeah, we don't know what's wrong with it. Our doctors say that there's nothing going on there, but he says his knee hurts, so he's not going to play anymore. And so you're like, okay, well, I mean, is that like, is there, do you have an MRI or something you can talk about? Like, no, no, we've done all the tests. There's nothing that we can see. Wow. So, and then he came back his second season and he had gone from maybe 230, 235 to 275, 280, and was built like a monster. And all upper body, all he did was walk around in like black tank tops, flexing, uh, including flexing in front of the one-way media mirrors in the practice facility at Sleep Train Arena. So he didn't know media was on the other side of the window and he was sitting there flexing, looking at himself. Yeah, I, I mean, we have... That might like, be my favorite Hassan Whiteside story. Well, I, I mean, there are plenty that would make you cry. But, you know, I was with him. I was standing by Samuel D'Alembert one day and Samuel D'Alembert said, um, come on, Hassan, let's go let's go uh, work on your post moves. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm all right. Dallenbear looks over, he's got Coachy, you know, Coach Pete Carrill, who spent 50 years at Princeton, one of the greatest basketball minds to ever play, I mean, to ever be in the game of basketball, you know, a living legend. He says, hey, no, no, you're coming over, we're, we're going to go work out with Coachy. And he goes, no, dude, I, I'm good. And Dallenbear's like, hey, dude, it's not, a, it's not an option, you're coming right now. And Hassan Whiteside's response was, okay, I'll give you 10. Like... 10 reps. That's what he's going to give like one of the greatest basketball minds of all time and a very, very solid NBA veteran, whether you like D'Alembert or not. At that point, he was still serviceable as a player, a very, very solid NBA veteran who played a very similar style to, uh, to Hassan Whiteside. So just really, you know, he never got it. He didn't get it as a young kid. And, and again, I never thought he would get it. So good luck with him. But like again, if you're gonna pay him that twenty plus million a year or whatever it is, that's that's crazy in my book. I, I don't even know what to say to that because he could he could really like take the money and run like uh was it Ike Austin who did that, who who signed a nice big fat deal 
and then was horrible, regressed back to what he was before. That's something that I don't know the NBA teams can take a gamble on because, I mean, I wouldn't give him more than like a, a two or a three year deal and someone is going to come out blazing with huge money for that kid. Yeah, and what I'm concerned about is something paralleling Lane Stevenson where there, the markets that are interested in him would not offer the money and so that he's just going to end up in a bad spot because he's, you know, he's never had that big contract. So he kind of does owe it to himself to take the money. But I, that that'll be the wrong team. Yeah, and I think you'll be able to look too when you take on a player like this. And, and you're right, Lance Stevenson comparison is is pretty is pretty good. But what is he going to give you long term? And would Miami give him that? And they know him better than you do. And I, I think that's something that that teams should be leery of. What is Miami willing to do, regardless of how good he is this year? I mean, what's he averaging like? 15, 11.9, and almost and like four and a half blocks a game. If Miami isn't already like chomping at the bit to give him max money deal, well, even max money deal, I mean, that's crazy because you're looking at a 26-year-old who has, he hasn't even played 80 games in the league. I mean, seriously, he's he hasn't even, he's right at like right around 80 games for his entire career, and he was drafted six years ago, the same year Cousins was drafted. So this is just, it's a sketchy situation. I, I don't know. I don't, he's probably going to be one of the more intriguing free agent acquisitions we've ever seen just because it's beyond boom or bust. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you're throwing money down a hole and, and praying that you find gold at the bottom of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, I, I think the way to end this is actually opening it up to you, and that's, you know, this is a podcast that's listened to by a more national audience, and just, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is useful or important to convey about the Kings to that audience? I would say that that you're not going to know who the Sacramento Kings are for another 8 to 10 games. That if you're passing judgment on them now, or if you're passing judgment on you know, what you think about Rondo or what you think about Cousins, then you're making huge mistakes. Uh, this group is very tight. They are very, very tight. As tight a group that I've seen in Sacramento in my six years of covering the team. And that tells me that there's a chance, that there's a chance that this group pulls together and moves forward together and figures out a way to fit all these pieces in when you have all these pieces missing that the Kings have had over the first 12 games of the season, it's very difficult when you add to the fact that they, they've they had 10 new bodies brought in, it makes it nearly impossible. So give this team a little window to, to figure things out. And once they figure them out, give them, you know, maybe December and the first week or two of January to see where they're at. But I will be very surprised if this team isn't, shocking teams because at this point they have taken the Clippers to the brink twice. They've taken the Memphis Grizzlies to the brink. They they don't go away in any game and this is a team that does not know how to win yet. You can tell they don't know how to win yet as a team and if you can come back and beat a very good Toronto team without knowing how to win, that shows you that there's potential. And once they once they figure out the how to start a game right, and then once they figure out how to finish a game right, this team could really, really do some damage. And that's why I think a lot of people around Sacramento were were very, very high on this club early and why they should still be very high on this this club. And with the rest of the West sitting there just hanging out a game and a half, two games above the Kings and not putting them away early, that that's a mistake. This team could come back and bite a lot of people and steal – maybe an eight seed, maybe a seven seed. This this Western Conference is a lot more wide open than people thought. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think this is a team that's going to be worth paying attention to, even kind of regardless of where it turns out, because they have the way that they built it is a little bit unusual. And because DeMarcus Cousins, I think, has been a little bit lost in the shuffle in terms of how great he is. I watch him more than most people do, I think. And 
he not only is he a great player, but he's electric in a way that, as we talked about in terms of athletes, that few people are. So I strongly encourage not only to not only to see to watch him on League Pass, but if you live in an NBA city, there are, are a lot worse tickets that you could get than Kings tickets. Just as long as, as long as Cousins isn't suspended or hurt, that they're a really special team to watch. Yeah, every night you get to watch someone who has an ability that is special. And for that matter, I'll say that about Rudy Gay as well. When Rudy Gay is on, he is so smooth and so fun to watch. He he really has a lot of George Gervin-esque moves. Just the silkiness, the way his body moves is is elite and you don't see. So the Kings really, while they don't win that many games most season, they are intriguing. And, you know, we've said it a million times on, on our podcast, the uh, – the Kings are probably the most intriguing bad basketball team that you've ever seen, and they've been that way for a long time. And hopefully, you can take some of that moniker away and take away the bad bo- the bad basketball part of that. But you know, they still, they've got to do it on the court. And I, I just I wouldn't don't sleep on the Sacramento Kings. It's not over yet. Four and eight is a rough start, but it's not an an end all you know death sentence. This team can rebound and come right and get right back in this thing. Agreed, and uh, thank you so much for taking time. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to James Ham for taking the time to come on. It, he, you can follow him on Twitter at James underscore Ham. That's J-A-M-E-S underscore H-A-M. And you can also see him on CSN California and CSN Bay Area. And I love talking to James because, and, and people love his ilk, but especially James, because they know a specific team super well. And so the things that I was teasing in that were the Damian Lillard story and the Hassan Whiteside just magic at the end of that podcast. Because I had, you know, it's one of those things that's in the back of your noggin, but I'm not thinking about it as much. And it went in that direction. I'm so happy it did. And the Kings are, as I said at the end of the, as both of us said at the end of the podcast, they're a super interesting team because they're constructed in in an unusual way around a, a unique superstar and the NBA is a sport that is generally the superstars are unique but I think Cousins is is kind of a different breed and I've been a big fan of his forever and he seems to be ironing out some of some of the issues that um, have plagued his early career and especially with the the substantive nature of of his issue this time I think that's something very new I'm not talking about the the Horford thing I'm talking about the the Carl thing from last week and so that makes the Kings just somebody to watch, and as somebody who you know writes the League Pass Alert column for the Sporting News after years of doing non-national games of the week for Real GM, those kind of things make it fun, and that's part of why I love being a basketball fan and talking about it. And yeah, it's it's been a it's been a really good week for me. I mean, I, I wrote a piece about the possibility of Kevin Durant going to the Warriors on Sporting News, which has blown up, which is obviously wonderful. And uh, it's been fun to, to have that conversation. I've had a couple other opportunities recently, which I'm really thankful for. And, you know, and, and there was really nice feedback to the conversation that I tried to start, continue, whatever, last week. And, you know, that's a conversation that I'm looking forward to continuing, both with my own stuff and as I talked about. You know, for me, it's also about building this business. And I don't know how big my voice will carry, but I will have it carry as far as I can because that's all I can do. And it's... It's been a lot of fun, uh, so if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes, you can give it a review, that really does help. Feedback is something that I really do listen to, as I say almost every episode, I read everything, which I really do, I respond to as much as I can, I apologize when the res- responses are short, sometimes they are, I have a lot on my plate right now, but I do read everything and I appreciate everything, so you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, you can also email me to NBA at gmail.com. It is an email I have for this kind of interaction. And as I said, you know, my, my response might not be super long. I got one on the Sixers, which I could have given like a, a massive response to, but I, I just didn't have the time. Um, so I gave a short one and, you know, who knows, maybe I'll have the desire to write a piece on it. And that is something that happens. Sometimes people on Twitter or whatever inspire me to go in a different direction. And I appreciate that. That's part of the reason why I engage in those mediums is because it can help me do better work. And I mean, I obviously hope that it makes it makes your fan experience better because otherwise, if it, if it doesn't, then honestly, you don't need to follow me as much as I appreciate it and, and I really do. 
And um, and then the other, just kind of the other thing with this is is the Dunked On podcast, which is doing really well. I'm I'm super thankful for that. And Nate does such an amazing job with me and within the episodes that I'm not on. He's recording one today. I I don't spoil other people's guests, but it's good. It should be a really good one, especially it's a, somebody who I'm a big fan of. So keep listening to that. Um, this podcast, as some of you know, is headed for a big number. And that will be an episode. We I still don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know that it's going to be something I'm I'm going to be excited about. So look for that early next week. There is a possibility that it will be pushed back due to the Thanksgiving related uh, shenanigans, just in terms of people's time. But no matter what, you know you'll you'll be getting a Real Jam Radio podcast a week. It just might be two in one week if need be. And I'm hoping it's not. I'm hoping we'll put it out early next week. But who knows. So that's enough little rambling at the end of this, and it wasn't as substantive as last week, so I'm sorry about that. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting comfortable doing this now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.